So I want to talk about perception, self, and non-self tonight. And I want to start by telling you about something that happened just maybe an hour ago uh, that really struck me as being incredibly relevant to, to that topic of perception and how we view ourselves within that perception. After supper, myself and one of the teachers went on a walk and we came upon an animal that was really, really suffering. This animal was uh, uh, in, in visible distress. And leading up to that, I was talking to uh, the teacher just expressing how I was feeling really nervous about giving this talk tonight and kind of stuck in my own drama around it. Even though what I'm talking about tonight is no self, I have <laughs> not quite escaped uh, the trappings of, and how strong that self really is within myself, within each of us. And so I was expressing this and um, just being aware of that nervousness and the jitters in my mind going in all kinds of directions with it. And then we came into contact with this animal who was uh, in distress. And it was so incredible, that sense of self in that small, small me that was freaking out in one moment just completely dissolved in relationship with this creature's uh, pain and suffering. And there was just, all there was, was room for compassion. There was no more room for this little self that was uh, kind of trapped in its own little world. And so perception is like this, where one minute we're really stuck in our own drama and the way that we see the world is from that view. And then it can be interrupted in just a split second when we notice somebody else's discomfort or suffering, when we suddenly uh, are becoming more attuned with the joys and the expansiveness of the nature that's around us, um, the interactions, although in silence, hopefully, but the sweet interactions that I'm sure that you've observed with each other, and just how the heart in those moments naturally opens our perception of how things really are, suddenly opens from that small, condensed view of how things are. And it feels good, right? It's this expansive kind of ah, relief. It's, it's freedom, in a sense, in those moments. And so I want to talk about this tonight. We really start to form this, uh, or we, well, from the point of birth, maybe prenatal, we're taking in information we're perceiving the world and getting to know our place in it from, from infancy. And the way that I think of it, I know nothing about the development of, uh, of infants, but the way I think about it, when I look at a small baby exploring the world, is really what they're perceiving at that point is just shape, and maybe Vedana, 
I like it, or unpleasant, pleasant, neutral. When it's unpleasant, baby's crying, it knows something's not right, so it's trying to communicate that. When it's pleasant, they're cooing, they're sweet. When it's neutral, they're probably just sleeping or spacing out, I don't know. But we're doing this at a very young age. And then we start to learn the names of things. We start to identify Kate, mom, dad, you know, dog, cat. And so we start to have this relationship with the world around us, noticing that Kate is different from mom, dad, chair, car. So this perception of the world begins to change and um, become more uh, complex in a way. And then very soon, maybe, I'm not sure if it's before we learn the names of things or, or if it's after it all comes together, but we start liking and disliking. You know, so we start uh, uh, creating that, that sense of neediness, greed. I want, I want, I want, mine, 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 mine. If you've ever been around a two-year-old, this is kind of their world of exploring mine, me, now. And then, no, 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 I don't want. Get rid of it, aversion, right? And so all of this is um, how we begin to learn our place in the world. And it's healthy. We have to learn our sense of self in the world. It's very practical. Um, it's, It's how we have a healthy relationship with with uh, ourself and, and how we are with, with others in the world. But it's a really tricky thing because if we are perceiving, and you've noticed this, I'm sure, as you're perceiving the world, uh, if you aren't mindful of how you're perceiving it, so if you aren't aware, if you're not knowing how things are being perceived, what lens you're actually looking through as you're encountering the world and and knowing yourself, um, we get lost, we get caught up in these perceptions, we're deluded. So for example, you've probably noticed that when you are feeling uh, aversion or anxiety or anger, the world seems a little bit uh, harsh. Uh, Things, you know, especially here in the silence where we can't actually communicate with each other. You know, someone bumps into you and on the right day, you might take it really personally. Oh, they did that on purpose. Why are they standing so close to me? Don't they know I'm standing right behind them? Why can't they just feel my presence here? Whatever it is. And so the way that we're perceiving what's going on is really colored by that aversion. 
And then other days, you might be in total bliss. Everything's wonderful and peaceful, and I'm connected, and there's the nature, and all this joy is coming out of my heart. And you could be in that same line with that same person right there in front of you, bumping into you, and it's, oh, isn't this wonderful? We're all here together. And it's just the way that we're perceiving the world in that moment. And so if we're not aware of how these perceptions are being colored, uh, we, we really do, we get stuck into it. It's where a lot of our dukkha comes from. It's just not seeing clearly. Our perception on just who we are Uh, this self that seems to be occupying this body is also very tricky. Obviously, uh, we can't actually see ourself. This is something that I think Ajahn Sumedho points out in his book, Sound of Silence. And where he's saying that you know, we can go and look into a mirror or a reflection of something and then we can see through that perception uh, what we look like and who we are and what this body is. Um, But we actually can't see ourselves directly. We can see others, but we can't actually turn and see what is this, what is Kate. And Ajahn Amaro writes uh, this beautiful reflection, I think reflecting on one of Ajahn Sumedho's teachings I'd like to read it to you. Thinking the mind is in the body, we say, mind. Or mind. So in Asia, uh, sometimes the mind is associated with the heart center. So mind or mind, right? It's It's all in my mind. Actually, we've got it wrong. The body is in our mind rather than the mind is in our body. What do we know about our body? We can see it. We can hear it. We can smell it. We can touch it. Where does seeing happen? In the mind. Where do we experience touch? In the mind. Where do we experience smelling? Where does that happen? In the mind. Everything, everything that we know about the body now and at the, any previous time has been known through the agency of our mind. We have never known anything about our body except through our mind. So our entire life, ever since infancy, everything we have ever known about our body and the world around us has happened in our mind. It doesn't mean to say that there isn't a physical world. But what we can say is that the experience of the body and the experience of the world happens within our mind. It doesn't happen anywhere else. It's all happening here. And in that here 
the world's external externality, I don't know if I said that right, its separateness has ceased. So that's very practical, isn't it? But really, really profound. Just this slight turning of perspective of what is this self? What is this body? What is Kate? Just that slight turn of perspective and understanding. And we start to get maybe a fuller view of how things really are. So I want to make this um, practical. And I'd like to explain it in a different way, in, in a way that I like to think of it. So I really like to go hiking. And one of the places that I've hiked a lot is Mount Diablo, which is in Walnut Creek in the East Bay. And I have family out there. And so I'll drive uh, down the 24. And, you know, as you're driving, you're mostly in the valley there. And all of a sudden it opens up and there's Mount Diablo. And it's this beautiful mountain. Uh, And when I look at it, I think there's Mount Diablo. There's the mountain. But when I go hiking on it, and I'm right there up close to it, that mountain is no longer just a mountain. It's dirt, it's grasses, it's bugs, it's rock, uh, it's rabbits and wildflowers and trees and you name it. So I wouldn't pick up a grain of sand from the dirt and call it Mount Diablo. And in this way, uh, we're, we're the same thing. This thing I call Kate, well, what is that? You know, it's skin, it's nails, it's teeth, it's hair, it's organs, brain, whatever. Uh, what part is Kate? Is it feeling? Is it thoughts? Is it Vedana? What is it? And so it can be really, it's really healthy to have that view of this is Mount Diablo, this is Kate. That's important to have. You know, I, I want to meet someone for a hike on Mount Diablo, I can tell them where to go. This is practical. This is good. I wouldn't refer to myself as, hi, I'm skin, bone, teeth, hair, nails, nice to meet you. <laughs> no. <laughs> So there's this relative reality and then there's this larger reality that we're starting to open to and get to know. And we can hold both. It's when we hold too tightly to uh, things like Kate or Mount Diablo, this body, uh, our stories, the way that we see the world, that's where things start to get really sticky. When we start to see those things as permanent, as uh, constant, as solid, that's where we start to experience the friction of life, start to feel that uh, those strongly had held views, 
when we come against their fluidity and their malleability, suddenly we are against that. And there's that friction, that dukkha, that suffering, that stress. I'll tell you another story that demonstrates what I mean. I was on a retreat, a month-long retreat, on the East Coast. And I've had some semi-dukkha retreats, but this was the most difficult retreat I had ever been on. The first half, anyway. The second was wonderful, but the first half was a dukkha-dukkha retreat. And I was experiencing aversion on a level that I didn't even know could exist. (laughs) I mean, talk about holding tight to stories and view. I didn't even think of myself as a very aversive person until I saw my capability (laughs) on this this retreat. (laughs) And so everything was wrong. That friction was just at every turn. So, you know, sitting uh, in this hall, well... You know, it, uh, someone was wrestling with their foot and another person was closing and opening the windows and it was too hot and then it was too cold and then I would leave and then I'd do walking meditation and I'm thinking, why am I doing walking meditation? I don't even like walking meditation, which I do. I really love walking meditation, but for some reason I just was so averse to everything that I had to do, the food, standing in line, doing my yogi job, Uh, any contact with anyone, the teachers, forget it, totally averse. And I loved these teachers. Now, I was very aware that this was happening. I knew that I was experiencing a lot of aversion and really trying not to get caught up in it. But it was just like a wave that would come over me. And it was so confusing. And my whole identity around what kind of practitioner I was was really, really shaken on this retreat, and I just didn't understand, and it was so frustrating. And so there I was, being my aversive self, (laughs) and I walk into an interview, and I sit down, and I said, I just don't have faith in this anymore. I don't think I can do this anymore. And the teacher leaned forward and said, you know, Kate, I think you're experiencing doubt. And I said, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> I was so averse, I couldn't even hear that. No, you don't, I don't think that's right. And so I left, I left the, <laughs> the interview um, thinking, whatever, you know, oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. And I go and do my walking, which what I didn't really want to do, but that's what we were doing. And I'm walking along, and it just, just in this one moment of openness, this thought arose what if it is doubt? And that's all it took. All it was was this sudden turning towards what was really going on. And in that moment of turning towards it, all these stories of doubt, which the aversion was protecting, was just this layer over. All these layers of doubt just came flooding out. All these stories of, I don't trust this practice. I don't trust my ability. I don't trust the teachers. I don't trust this place. It just kept going. It was unbelievable. It was just one story after another. And I was just standing there, letting it happen, just allowing the flood 
to go unhindered. And as it was happening, I was very aware that all it was was doubt. It was just a story. And so this story that I had, all of these stories, were stories that I was holding so dearly and tightly and and so tightly and protecting that with my aversion. Don't even want to see it. Uh, Suddenly there was this release simply by turning towards what was there and seeing it's just doubt. And my perception on everything that was going on on this retreat changed. Now, that was kind of a magical moment. (laughs) It doesn't always happen like this. It doesn't always happen that way for me. But I just think it's such a, it was such a palpable experience for me um, and such a great example of the possibility when we turn towards those places of discomfort, that tightness, that friction that we experience. There's this possibility of letting go. And also a possibility just to see things as they really are. It would have been really easy for me to grab back on to those stories of, you know, things aren't good enough, I'm not good enough, the teachers aren't good enough, and really continue to hold on to those just out of comfort or just because I didn't see clearly. But instead, uh, for whatever reason, was able to see it's just story. It's just story. It's just doubt. It's just aversion. This doesn't even belong to me. And it just goes. And so you've probably experienced this from time to time. When we can really see clearly and kind of step out of our closeness uh, of perception of what's going on and open it up to something a little bit bigger, we can really begin to see the truth of things. We can begin to see uh, just how impersonal all of this is and how much of it is really uh, not really what's going on. problem is with perception is that because it colors and and changes the tone and can be so confusing and such a whirlwind within that mind of ours we kind of miss those moments of wisdom and freedom don't we so for example, maybe you've experienced on this retreat uh, some dukkha. <sighs> and then maybe you've experienced some moments without it. It's those dukkha moments, though, that are so memorable and we seem to get so identified with them. Sometimes, not for, not for everyone, I know that. But for a lot of us, it's those dukkha moments those places of stuckness, that we really end up creating a lot of identity around, a lot of story around, 
a lot of identification of who we are and what kind of practitioner we are and what our ability is. We really hold on to that, those sticky dukkha moments. And we really miss those moments of freedom that are there often, even if they're just for a second, those moments of freedom of seeing clearly no hindrance. The heart opens, but we miss it. It's so subtle, it's so simple, it's almost too simple. It's so simple that our mind immediately gets in the way and starts looking for things to do with it. Oh, this is great. Well, maybe if I just add a little more metta to this moment, and then if I just kind of lean to the side a little bit like this, and I put my hands out like this, and then it'll be better, or whatever it is for you. I'm walking along, everything's just fine. Well, maybe I'll walk down this way, or, you know... Maybe I'll go and and really look at the flowers really close because I'm feeling so great. There's kind of this pull towards more experience. Have you experienced that? Have you seen that? Yeah, like it's not enough. Just that simpleness of being. We have to go looking for a little bit more. It's really easy to do. I think in a way our minds get so good at taking in the information, you know, we're taking in this information from all of our senses, we're taking information uh, from our memories, our thoughts, our emotional reactions, we're cognizing it, we're creating some kind of um, relationship with what we're experiencing. Our mind gets so good at that, and it feels safe doing that, that when we have those moments of just simpleness, of just being, it kind of will jump back in looking for something to do or looking for something that's not quite right. We think of uh, clarity and, and freedom as something that will come with a big bang and fireworks, but really it's just this sitting back and receiving, just being with what is here, what's available. But the mind really gets in the way. And this isn't to give the mind a bad rap, it's because of these minds that we have this opportunity to awaken. The fact that we can turn and see it that our mind can turn and look at itself and know itself is what allows for letting go, for a realization. It's a wonderful thing. The mind isn't our enemy at all. It's a gift. It's just a little overactive and untrained, or very overactive and very untrained. That's all, not personal. It's just how it is. When I work with kids and we talk about the mind, it's just, this is the mind. This is, this is what it likes to do. It loves to think. It loves to figure things out. We are a meaning-making species. We can make meaning out of anything. We can identify with just about anything. And it's safe. 
That feels safe to us. And that's okay. But what we're doing here is we're starting to peel back those layers. We're starting to perceive things and then turn towards it and see clearly really what's going on. You know, Heather was talking about the impermanence of life, of everything. The truth of that. It was a beautiful talk and and I know that when we hear things like that, it can feel a little shaky sometimes. Everything's impermanent. But actually, it's been going on like that this whole time. It's just that we don't really see it. We're so stuck in that inner drama and that all those inner stories that we don't quite see the simpleness of impermanence. Nature gets it. We're just a little behind. We're getting there. We're working on it. (laughs) We're training our mind just to slightly turn and see the truth of how things are. The same with things not being satisfying. We get to notice that constantly on retreat. It's wonderful. (laughs) It is. (laughs) What a blessing. We get to see that not only the things that we already know are unpleasant, but the things we think will bring us true happiness aren't really doing it for us. What great information. Isn't that a blessing that we get to come here and experience that and know that, that we don't have to keep going and looking for those outside things to fill those voids, to fill that emptiness, which is really just that space within yourself that is longing for truth and longing to see things how they really are. And same with this sense of self, who we are. You know, Kate, what is this? And it's like Ajahn Amaro was saying, it doesn't mean there isn't a physical being here, but just this idea, this identification with it. It's just something that we're creating constantly. And to see that can be scary. It can be really, really frightening. I think of it as we start to open up to uh, these, realiz- these, these realizations, these truths, as being on a sailboat, which was revealed that I love to sail and have a sailboat and love to sail on the the San Francisco Bay. And if you haven't sailed before and you get on a sailboat, most likely what you'll experience is seasickness, which is the body just not being used to the constant movement and change that's happening while you're on that boat. The body is so used to land and solidity and that's what's safe. And that's what it knows. And then you get onto a boat and everything's moving. And so the instruction is to feel that, but to just ground yourself and look out at the horizon, at something, at, at something that's still. So that horizon line gives you something that's a little more solid, a little more familiar, and the mind and the body can relax. And so we do that a little bit here. We kind of go in and out of these truths. 
And then you've been sailing for some time and you don't need to look at the horizon anymore. Your body's acclimated to this constant shifting and changing of water and tides. And that feels normal. (laughs) And so in this way, that's kind of what we're doing here, isn't it? We're just getting used to, in a gentle way, this shifting and changing. The fact that you're here is such a... It says something about you and your wanting to be comfortable with that shifting and changing because we're sick of the friction, aren't we? It's painful. Even the littlest of friction, the littlest of dukkha, we're kind of tired of that. But it's scary. It's, it's, it's not comfortable quite yet for a lot of us. And that's okay. So we just keep an eye on that horizon and that sense of self and groundedness. And, and then we trust that eventually we won't need to look at that horizon so much. And so as we begin to relax and rest into the truth of things, seeing things clearly, really all we are doing, from my perspective, It's just being. It's just being, knowing, and just being. It's so simple. I've I've heard Temple say a few times, it's so simple, but not easy. (laughs) I like that. It's very accurate. But it is. It's the simpleness of being when we are able to step out of our stories, when we're able to just relax in uh, being present and not having to add to it. When we're able to just perceive the world around us without quickly identifying with it and making it into something more than it is. I find that nature is a great teacher of this just being. I love the reminder that it gives me that it's doing that all the time (laughs) and that we are part of that lineage of just being. And that in some way I feel we're just going back to that. I have a poem that I think I'll end with and it speaks to this to this ability to just be to be still to rest in something peaceful or to rest in something that's not so peaceful to have an equanimity about 
whatever is being perceived. I think it was Temple in one of his interviews was explaining one of the things that we're doing here is creating space between uh, what we're, what's being perceived and the Vedana behind it and then our aversion, our neediness, our, our disinterest, our doubt, our fears. And we're just creating space. Seeing this possibility that we don't have to get hooked. It doesn't mean that experience suddenly becomes perfect and lovely and there's no more suffering no more pain, but our relationship with what's happening shifts. And the ability to receive and respond uh, to whatever is going on in our experience, in a way, that's a freedom in itself. This just being. And so there's this poem by David Wagner called Lost. Maybe some of you know it. And it makes me think about being in the woods, maybe even just behind here. You can get a sense for it. Uh, And that feeling of being lost and how scary that is, of just not quite understanding and wanting answers and wanting to figure it out and needing someone to come in and just pluck you out of it You ever wish for that? Can't just someone tell me what to do? Can't someone just save me in this moment? So this poem reminds me of that a little bit. And also just our pure ability to relax and turn towards whatever that experience is and receive. So this is called Lost. Stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger. You must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers, I have made this place for you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, Here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So this ability to let go, this ability to not figure it out as nerve-wracking or ungrounding as sometimes that feels. There is something, I think, bigger than all of us that is here to support that. 
So let's just be quiet, or I'll be quiet. And you can stay quiet. (laughs) And we'll just sit for a few minutes.